Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. We are still very much in the 12 days after all. Church calendar has traditionally marked the second day in Christmas, so December 26th, as St. Stephen's Day, or the Feast of Stephen, as it is called in that old carol, Good King Wenceslas. The feast day commemorates Stephen, the first Christian to die for the sake of his faith, which might seem an odd choice for a festive season. Yet it was a very conscious choice to follow Christmas Day with a feast day commemorating a martyr. Not, mind you, to throw a bucket of cold water over the joyous Christmas festivities. The day still was very much a feast day, The force of the placement of St. Stephen's Day on that second day in Christmas was to state very clearly that for all of the wonder of the Nativity story, it is but one chapter in a much longer story. Christmas Day proclaims that the Word became flesh and lived among us. It's a central truth very much worth feasting. Since Stephen's day reminds us that while he was in the world and the world came into being through him, still the world knew him not. And in that knew him not, there was a very real cost. Well, something of the same wisdom can be said of the lectionary having us read this story from the gospel according to Luke on the first Sunday in Christmastide. It's one of a very small handful of stories dealing with Jesus' infancy and childhood. It begins by telling how Mary and Joseph went up from Bethlehem to Jerusalem to visit the temple in order to fulfill the Torah requirements that Mary be declared ritually pure 40 days after giving birth. Luke also refers to the ritual of presenting a firstborn son to the Lord, though in fact there was no legal requirement that that be done in the temple itself. Luke may be conflating the two rituals. He even writes of their purification according to the law of Moses, but he might also be making a theological point here. Though only 40 days old, Jesus is making his first appearance in the temple where his parents will ritually redeem him. That's the language for a rite in which an offering is made to God on behalf of the firstborn, to redeem the child. Luke's point may be that Mary and Joseph have faithfully followed the covenant requirements of the Torah and have done so in the very temple that Jesus will later declare about to be replaced by the temple that is his own life and death and resurrection. Luke's sharpest focus, though, is on what happens there in the temple when Mary and Joseph enter and encounter these two people, a woman named Anna, who's identified as a prophet, and a man named Simeon, who Luke identifies as righteous and devout. Both are elders of the community, though neither, it would seem, had any official priestly or scribal role. 
What's most striking about Simeon is that he is said to be a man who was looking forward to the consolation of Israel and upon whom the Holy Spirit rested. Luke writes that it had been revealed to Simeon by the Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And so, guided by that Spirit, Simeon came into the temple. He took one look at this young couple and their baby, swept the child into his arms, and began to offer praise. Lord, now you are letting your servant die in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. I can die a happy man. I've seen the child of promise. It's as good as accomplished. The language of Simeon's song is pure poetry, filled with words that resonate really well in Christmastide. Peace, salvation, light, glory. And as you picture the scene of this old man sweeping the child into his arms and looking into into the child's face and uttering these words, can't you just see the light that comes from the old man's creased face? Then, as Luke tells it, Simeon moves from poetry to prose, from a song filled with light to words filled with warning. Then Simeon blessed them, and he said to the child's mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel, to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel. This child, in other words, will not walk an easy road. This child will bring crisis and division to a nation that knows not the depths of its own estrangement. Certainly some will follow him, but others will oppose him, reject him, It has always been the way with the prophets of God. Simeon's words almost foreshadow one of Jesus' own harder and most perplexing sayings. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have come not to bring peace, but a sword. Not that Jesus carried a sword, In fact, on the one occasion in which one of his disciples wielded one, Jesus responded by telling him, Put your sword back into its place. For all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. But his teachings, his parables, were a kind of a sword, as was his choice of friends, the company he insisted on keeping the unclean outsiders. He talked about a good Samaritan in a world that saw Samaritans as despised, impure, the other. He ate and drank with sinners and was critiqued for it. 
He named the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the scribes, saying that they were no more than beautiful grave markers placed atop the decay of death. He publicly debated with respected and recognized religious leaders, and he won. Each of those acts cut against the grain of accepted practice and conventional definitions of righteousness. Some found that their imaginations, their hopes, were lit up by all that he said and did. Others found Jesus so offensive as to be dangerous. This child, this child is to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. Just to stand in his presence is to find something of the truth being told about your own life. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. Those final words spoken as a warning to Mary, this young new mother of this baby. The path that your baby will walk is going to break your heart, Mary. He's going to break your heart. And then as suddenly as old Simeon had appeared, he's gone from the scene. Now Luke's focus is on 84-year-old Anna, who he says never left the temple, but worshipped there with prayer and fasting night and day. With the prophet Anna's appearance, we're moved from those words of warning back to the language of praise. At that moment, Anna came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem, from prose back to poetry. With Anna's arrival, we're back to something closer to Simeon's song. Peace. Salvation, light, and glory. We're back to the feast and celebration that is Christmastide. But now with this renewed awareness that the story will move forward into more challenging territory, rightly we can sing and dance at his birth. Rightly we can fill our homes with lights, put up trees, feast right in the heart of the darkest days of winter, Rightly, we can let ourselves be touched with that sense of childlike wonder because we know that the story does move forward and that we've been invited to be a part of it as the adopted children of the Lord God, as Paul says. In that carol for St. Stephen's Day, King Wenceslas is identified as good because he's the sort of king willing to interrupt his own comfort his own feast, for the sake of a poor man to whom the king takes out food and wine and wood for the fire. Perhaps that's what it means to rightly keep the Christmas feast, to be open to the interruptions of the world around us and still to sing of peace, salvation, light, and glory. May these coming days of Christmas tide be for you days filled with light and life. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.